0: Today on this episode of the After the Timeout podcast, we are joined by Matt Monroe, Head Boys Basketball Coach at St. Ignatius High School in Chicago, and Illinois Basketball Coaches Association Executive Board Member. We talk to Coach Monroe about his coaching journey, the state of the basketball coaching profession, as well as the goals of the IBCA. We also get into St. Ignatius' journey downstate and preparing for the summer after such a successful season. As always, thank you for listening to the after Time timeout podcast.
1: No. All right,
0: coach, let's start with our opening tip. Um, so you, you got your start as a manager at DePaul University. So this is a multi-part question here. First of all, um, What were some of the lessons you learned as a manager? And then maybe some of your favorite jobs and probably even some of your least favorite jobs as a manager, because I'm sure there were some of those. So let's start with that.
1: You know, being a a manager uh, definitely had a tremendous role in shaping not just me as a coach, but really who I am as a person. There's so many incredible life lessons that you learn being a manager. You know, uh, in terms of some of those lessons, I think the first one is uh, just the importance of having a really, really good work ethic. Um, You have to put in a ton of time, uh, especially in unseen hours, uh, stuff that doesn't go noticed and, and stuff that's really important to the operation of the program. So developing that work ethic was a big part of my experience as a manager, but also understanding that there's no job that's too small, that should not have the most attention that you can possibly give it you know even if it's washing the laundry or packing the bags or setting up the gym you know all those things make practice run make a program run so there never was a job that was too small to have us focus on and give our our best effort. Um, Some of my favorite responsibilities as a manager well I was very very lucky Um, our DePaul University coaching staff at the time uh, head coach Dave Lato and his awesome assistants—they knew that I wanted to be a coach, and that was really what my passion was. So certainly, I had to do a, a lot of the roles that every managers do. Like I mentioned, you know, getting the practice equipment out, doing the clock, washing the laundry, packing the bags. But they also allowed me to do things that would help me through my coaching career. For example, um, I was in charge for a couple of years of our film exchange program for scouting, Um, sending out VHS tapes uh, to other schools, uh, getting that dual deck tape recorder going to splice up games, uh, sending letters to other colleges and calling them to to organize our scout film, typing up practice plans. Um, They would also let me sit in on meetings. that the coaching staff would have. Uh, They would talk with me about X's and O's, uh, practice uh, plans and and strategy for games. So it was a really cool experience. My favorite things were definitely the things that allowed me to kind of learn as a coach. Um, And I would keep a notebook with me wherever I went. And every single time a coach said something, a teaching point, taught a skill, did a drill, introduced a concept, I would take notes on every single thing that I learned, and, and I still have those that I reference today. Uh, some of the jobs that weren't fun, I mean, I did learn how to do laundry uh, by being a manager. It's not something that I knew how to do before. Uh, so it had a practical purpose, though so it wasn't the, the most fun thing to do. Uh, certainly having to, to rush and, and clean up uh, the floor if anyone fell down, you know, wasn't the most glorious thing, but it was important. Um, I really enjoyed doing the clock because it gave me a front row at practice every single day, though. There was one time that I couldn't get the shot clock straight, so Coach Lato had to make me run a few laps for messing it up uh, one time too many. But being a manager was an outstanding experience. I was actually talking with one of our uh, graduating seniors today, and uh, he's really close to committing to being a manager at the University of Oklahoma. And we had talked about all these experiences and how it really shaped me into the person I am today, and I'm forever grateful for them.
0: Uh, Now, uh, were you as good as the broom guys today? Like the broom guys that wipe up the sweat today, they're pretty quick. Like what was your, what was your broom time?
1: Yeah. So uh, I'm so old. We actually did not have that technology. Oh, you just use a towel. Yeah, we would always, I mean, you had the manager stance. You had your DePaul shirt on and your matching shorts with the towel over your shoulder. And we didn't have any fancy broom to wipe up the sweat off the ground. We had to get right back down to our knees and, and wipe it off by hand. So um, it was not, uh, we, we didn't have the speed that the guys have nowadays. It's certainly you're, about- You were living the rough life, VHS and uh, towels on the floor, crawling on the floor. Yeah, I think I dated myself a little bit with uh, some of those <laughs> manager explanations, so-
0: all right, so then you go through that whole, whole process as a manager. Kind of what made you decide to go to the high school level instead of the college route, right? Because, you know, you're kind of in that zone as a manager. Maybe you move up as a lower level assistant, right? You kind of go through that level
1: college-wise or, you know, you're getting your degree, things like that. So what made you just made that decision for you? Well, I've been wanting to be a coach since I was eight years old. Uh, my dad was a coach. Uh, when my brothers and I would play basketball out in, uh, in the driveway, certainly I would play, but I would also pretend that I was the coach as well. It's something I always wanted to be. My eighth grade uh, yearbook uh, predicted that that would be my future profession, basketball coach. But even though I wanted to be a coach from a young age, you know, I wasn't quite sure what level uh, I wanted to pursue it at. And so when I was a manager at DePaul, <clears throat> excuse me, I certainly really, Uh, enjoyed being a part of the college game. Uh, I love traveling. I I got to sit on the bench for two NCAA tournament games, coolest experience ever. Um, But then I was also studying education, uh, starting to be a social studies teacher. And when I did my student teaching my senior year, I absolutely fell in love with teaching. Uh, And to me, you know, it kind of married the two things that I, that I enjoy the most professionally teaching and coaching. And to be honest, it's really one and the same. Uh, I teach social studies during the day and I teach basketball after school in the gym. And so that's something I really was drawn to. Um, the second thing that really kind of made me choose to pursue high school over college was I saw how much the guys that were coaching were on the road. And, and I wanted a situation that was maybe a little bit more feasible to have a family. And the third thing that really drew me to, to high school was the fact that I felt like at that age, at the age that our, our players are in at high school, that I could have A really, really great opportunity to have an impact on their lives and and their overall development as young people. And finally, um, I really, really looked at the opportunity to develop a program uh, to have multiple levels and to develop that comprehensive program that student athletes, you know, enter freshman year and work their way through the varsity and and, and those different levels. I I really was drawn to that aspect of program building as well.
2: So, kind of to build on that, you and I were kind of having this conversation off air a little bit yesterday but you know you were an assistant at at a a few places Niles West and Vernon Hills and Deerfield and and obviously St. Pat's you know what were some of the things you kind of learned at each stop that you kind of still use today Um, and then maybe just a a lesson or so because you worked for for four great head coaches there you know maybe a, a lesson or two from from one or one or two of them.
1: Yeah, you know, I've been very, very lucky. Um, In my 20 years coaching, I've been able to have a a diverse um, amount of experiences. Uh, I worked for different coaches that had different styles and different situations at different schools. And I was very, very lucky to do that. And I took away a ton from each experience, whether it was coaching AAU or junior high basketball or working at these different high schools. You know, my first high school coaching job, I uh, was—I started coaching when I was a senior in high school, but my first high school coaching job was at Deerfield High School, my alma mater when I was a freshman in college. So I was working with kids that were my classmates and were my friends. So it was a unique situation. and, And it was also unique in the sense that You know, Deerfield had a a legendary coach, uh, someone that has served as a mentor to me, someone that was a true inspiration to me. And his name was Steve Pappas. We actually play in a shootout at DePaul Prep every single year in his honor since he passed away about 15 years ago. And um, the year I started coaching was the year after he retired. So it was really interesting seeing a program uh, being kind of taken over by a new coach following a legendary coach. And I learned a lot of lessons through that experience. And also the program was kind of in a a little bit of a downturn. And it was also interesting how uh, our coaching and our coaching staff ended up having to manage those expectations and how they had kind of changed over the years and trying to build that program back up. Uh, It was also a a really a crash course in X's and O's. I learned how to teach motion offense and man-to-man defense, a lot of stuff that, you know, I I didn't necessarily see the teaching end of it uh, growing up as a player and an aspiring coach. So I learned some really valuable lessons in that regard. And then um, when I was student teaching, I student taught at Niles West. So I ended up volunteering there um, for one year with the varsity. And I got to learn from a guy named Josh Grant, who played in the NBA, played for Rick Majerus over at Utah and uh, coached at at Lake Forest before he went to Niles West. And, you know, he had a different view of the game, taught it differently, different strategies, different X's and O's, different teaching points. And I was able to be a sponge in, in terms of learning that different perspective uh, as well. I also learned about time management while I was student teaching and uh, coaching at Niles West. I was also um, coaching junior high basketball, Daniel Wright in Lincolnshire. I was working with the Deerfield feeder program as an assistant and coached AAU. So sometimes I would coach three practices in a day. Um, and it was awesome, but I really learned how to, how to manage my time. And obviously, as a head coach, that's extremely important. Uh, then I went to Vernon Hills, and I was there for two years as a head freshman coach. And that was the first time at the high school level I was able to lead my own team. I certainly coach my own travel teams, but that was my first experience leading my own level as, as a level head coach. And so there's a lot of learning um, through that experience, but I also got to assist the varsity a lot as well. And Matt McCarty over there at Vernon Hills, he's still the coach. He's fantastic. Uh, Through him, I learned the power of positive coaching, the importance of relationship building, Uh, certainly a different perspective on X's and O's as well. And also uh, he really got me going in terms of putting together scouting reports. It was my first experience of kind of taking the lead in terms of scouting certain opponents. And that was certainly something that really was beneficial for me, but also was something that uh, I I learned to really love about coaching, uh, game planning and scouting reports. Um, And then I ended up at St. Pat's for eight years. Um, I taught social studies there, and I was an assistant coach under Mike Bailey, who is an absolute legend in coaching. He's one of my best friends. Uh, and even though I'm a little biased, I truly believe that he is one of, if not the best coaches around. Um, learning from a legend was interesting. It was a totally different experience. Uh, the level of competition and, um, the rivalry games and, and, uh, the expectations that we had at St. Pats were all new to me when I first got there. Um, when I worked at St. Pats, I, I did double duty. My first two years, I coached the freshmen and assisted with the varsity. And my last six years, I was the head sophomore coach and coached the varsity. So every single day, uh, four to five hours of practice, two games a night on game days. Uh, it was really a, a clinic and how to run a program and how to, how to build a successful program. Coach Bailey also taught me the fine details and how important being detail-oriented really is and how you can mash together teaching and coaching as one. He's one of the best teachers of the games that that I really have ever uh, been around. Fantastic. But you know, the other thing that he really helped me with big time was the administrative side of coaching. Excuse me, I thought that coaching was what you did at practice and what you did during the games, but he really taught me the behind the scenes stuff, you know, putting together schedules, uh, communicating with families, talking with players, uh, working on the academic side of things. Um, I really learned a lot about the administrative side of coaching through him and he really put me in a position to, to do a lot of those things so when I became a head coach, I was able to step right in. Um, but probably the biggest thing that he taught me was uh, the importance of being a lifelong learner. I'll never forget, um, you know, a couple years in, him and I go to clinics all the time together, still do. And we went to a clinic at Niles West High School, it was an IBCA clinic. And we were there, a bunch of people, and speakers were great. And I'll never forget uh, Coach Bailey was there 30 years coaching taking notes feverishly and there are a lot of new coaches that were in the stands that were just watching not even taking a note and here's this guy who had accomplished just about everything as a coach known in coaching circles as one of the best still taking notes and trying to learn and so what that taught me is that as long as I'm going to be a coach I am always going to try to get better and always try to learn as much as I can
0: all right so I want I want to go a little bit off script here cuz you you had a lot of great stuff there, but something that piqued my interest, uh, like you know, coaching with someone who played for Rick Majerus. Rick Majerus is known as one of the best coaches uh, around. People use his stuff today. He he's still got a a, a tree right. Um, what were what were some of those things of the Majerus style that that you you learned there? Because he wasn't always. I guess, traditional, right? He, he had his very distinct way of doing things. Right. And he, he thought this, you know, this is how we're gonna do it. Maybe it wasn't always the same as, you know, I guess you say traditional coast coaching and air quotes.
1: Yeah. You know, I think, um, I only spent one year at Now's West, but I think the biggest takeaway from, uh, I guess, the Majerus uh, family of coaches that included Josh Grant was uh, the way that he taught motion offense. And, you know, I I think one of the best old school motion uh, teaching films that's out there is actually done by Rick Majerus. And so Josh would teach motion offense really well, and, and he would teach players to learn how to read the defense and react to their teammates and not be robotic. Uh, He taught them decision-making and a lot of that process uh, coach Grant learned from coach Majerus.
0: All right. So moving on here, uh, we're doing a little compare and contrast, right? You've coached at large public schools, large private schools. Um, You know, uh, later on, we're going to talk about kind of the coaching changes, things like that. So I think this is a useful topic for, maybe are some of our listeners who may be looking for jobs other places or applying or, or for positions. Um, so talk about, you know, public school, private school experience, um, you know, some of the great things and then maybe some of the challenges on each side.
1: You, you know, in the in the first thing that comes to mind to me is coaching is coaching, uh, and kids are kids, and I think you know there's a lot of similarities between uh, working at and coaching at a pri- private school versus a public school. Uh, you still got to build a program culture. You still got to have an identity. It's still about teaching and relationship building and making those connections with the kids. Um, you know, in terms of the differences, um, obviously the biggest difference is the faith component. You know, at a private school, uh, faith becomes at the center of a lot of the things that you do. You pray before and after games, you go on retreats with your team, service opportunities, the mission of the school. Like at St. Ignatius, um, our mission is really deeply rooted in, the Catholic faith. So for example, um, the Jesuit priests that run our school believe in something called cura personalis, which is a Latin phrase for the whole person. And everything we do is kind of centered at trying to develop the whole person, whether it's academically, socially, uh, spiritually, athletically, extracurricular wise, and so forth. So certainly the faith aspect, is different um but in terms of like a technical standpoint and running a program you know there are some differences and I think oftentimes you know people if you don't live in both worlds uh, and if you have not experienced both you don't quite understand the differences and that there are pros and cons to being in both situations like for example um you're coaching at a public school um you Only have a few schools that maybe feed into your high school, but there's some benefits to that. Kids grow up playing together. They know each other. They're friends. uh, There's familiarity. Oftentimes, there's a feeder program that introduces the high school concepts to the kids at a young age. Um, High school coaches have a general idea knowing who's going to be coming into their high school, and those kids have the general idea of knowing who they're going to high school with. So there's a lot of benefits in that regard to having a program where a lot of kids have played together since they were in fourth or fifth grade. Um, Certainly at a private school, you don't get that. Um, Oftentimes you have kids who come in freshman year and it's the first time not only that they've even played with their teammates, but it's the first time they've even ever met them. And so it could take a little bit longer for those kids to gel, to develop that chemistry and for you to implement your system, since a lot of the concepts you're teaching them might be the first time they've ever seen it when they walk into the door freshman year. Obviously, there's a benefit uh, in terms of, you know, not having boundaries and kids could come from a lot of different grammar schools and there's a wider pool that, you know, really feeds into your high school. So, you know, I think when when you're looking at both situations, you know, as a young coach, if you're maybe pursuing a, a job, you um, I would certainly find out what's the best fit for you uh, personally and professionally, because like I said, there's there's benefits to to working at both types of schools as a coach.
2: Yes, and I, I think uh, you miss the major difference and the major difference is the money, but that's a different problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, that that certainly comes into play, especially the retirement part. I don't know if I'll ever want to retire. Um, I say that now, you know, in my late 30s, but I don't know if I'll ever want to retire. But for me, um, you know, and for anyone, I think that does it. Um, even if you're at a public school, the amount of hours that we put in versus the amount that we're paid, it, it truly is a labor of love and it's a, a vocation. And, and me personally, it's something that I would do uh, for free uh, if I had to. Don't tell anyone that because I still like getting uh, my stipend, but still, no, I would do it for free. It's like I said, an absolute labor of love. And it's something that uh, you you have to be passionate about if you want to do it.
2: For sure. Um, So I know this is another topic that I know is important to you and it's important to me and it's important to Todd. Um, But, you know, you, you are on the executive board of the IBCA and um, you know, we, we've had multiple uh, members of the IBCA board. Um, whether it's Jim Tracy or others, just to kind of talk about that organization. Um, but from, from your standpoint, I, I think you offer a unique vantage point for you. Why was it important for you to get involved that majorly in the, in the States Coaches Association at such a young age? Um, you know, I can speak from personal experience. There's often times where I'll come to a meeting and you and I are there and we're quite often the youngest two in the room. So, um, you know, for you, you know, why, why was that so important? to get involved early and kind of what are your goals for the organization?
1: Yeah. You know, when I first started coaching, um, my dad was a coach, like I mentioned. Um, and so he would bring me to coaches clinics all over the place. I mean, I remember one time going to Connecticut to watch a, a Nike elite clinic. So, One of the things that I would do a lot early on is I would go to the local coaches clinics and a lot of them were run by the IBCA. And I remember to go to the clinic, you had to be a member. So I must've been 18 years old and my dad uh, got me all signed up to to be a member of the IBCA. So I would always get the quarterly newsletters uh, from Coach Rolinski, who was the founder and the leader of the IBCA for so long. And I always wanted to stay connected. And I always saw um, on those letterheads that would go out All the the leaders in coaching, uh, the the district reps, the executive board members would all be listed on that letterhead. And I thought that was a really cool thing to not only be able to be a coach, but to be a, a leader within your profession and a voice to help other coaches. And so when I was at St. Pat's, I was still an IBCA member for a long time. But when I was at St. Pat's, Coach Bailey was heavily involved. Uh, He's been a president with the IBCA, a vice president, and now he's currently the associate uh, executive director. So must have been my second or third year. Um, I have a little bit of a background in technology. So uh, the IBCA needed a little bit of help with their website and uh, I jumped at the opportunity to to help them out. And as time went on uh, and I got to develop those relationships with other members of the IBCA and I got more comfortable and more confident, Uh, I really started to try to take on more and more of a leadership role within the organization. And I think it's really important, Um, you know, coaches, uh, we have a unique job and and we are in a really great fraternity that uh, really is closely connected and supports one another. And I love advocating for other coaches and advocating for the growth of our game. And uh, it's a responsibility that I I really take seriously. And I really, really enjoy. Um, There's a lot of things that we're working on as an organization. There's a lot of benefits to being in our organization. Certainly, there's a lot of things that we do in terms of honoring coaches. Uh, We have our All-Star Games, our our All-State Teams for Players, our Coach of the Year Awards, our Hall of Fame, our Milestone Awards, our Hall of Fame Banquet. All that stuff's great, Uh, and we really enjoy being able to celebrate the the amazing accomplishments of our peers. But also, uh, a big responsibility of ours is, like I mentioned earlier, trying to grow the game working on supporting coaches, setting up mentorship programs, connecting coaches, developing relationships across the state with coaches of all different levels and and all different uh, experience levels. So it is something that, um, that I really enjoy and it's an organization that I, I'm really passionate about and I think does so much good for our game uh, across the state. We're actually honoring or uh, celebrating our 50th year as a uh, organization this year so there's a lot of cool stuff that we've gone back and and looked at in terms of looking at the impact of the IBCA over the years
2: all right so let, we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna get to the mentor thing in a moment because I know that's a, a big thing for you and me but I, I want to kind of just touch bit, a little bit because I know you are one of our representatives that kind of attends the national coaches you know conference yearly as well um So the the first part of this question is for you, and I'm sure the shot clock will get mentioned in this conversation, but what are some of the the trends or things you could see within our state for just the game of basketball boys and girls over the next, let's say 10 years?
1: You know, there's a lot of opportunities, I think for the game to grow over the next uh, five years. And there's also some threats to the game as well that uh, we can experience and, and that hopefully we can try to avoid. In terms of uh, growth opportunities, obviously, the shot clock is one of them. Uh, more and more states seem to be adopting the shot clock. The National Federation of High Schools um, gave states a choice whether or not they, they use it, which is a huge step in the right direction. Obviously, there's arguments for both sides of it. I think when we're looking at the shot clock, uh, you know, a lot of the um, problems with it would be finding people to operate it and, and the cost of it, though certainly a lot of the other states that have adopted the shot clock have found solutions to those issues. And a lot of the coaches in those states, at least the ones that are represented at our conference for the NHS BCA, have uh, come back with some pretty positive reviews about implementing Even the guys and girls that weren't necessarily in favor from the beginning uh, have said some pretty, pretty positive things about it. Um, I think the game has really grown and continues to grow in terms of uh, what players and teams can do. It's really quite amazing seeing how skilled players have become and, and how um, adept they have been at adjusting to the changes in the game. I think, the game is more exciting to watch now uh, more than ever, really. And a lot of that has to do with how skilled the players are and how competitive the coaches have been and how creative everyone has been to try to, to win games and, and try to be the best. So there's so many things that have been growing uh, within our game that are awesome, but there's a lot of threats that um, really can get in the way of the development of basketball. Um, not in any particular order, but first and foremost, uh, turnover and coaching has uh, really been alarming the last couple of years. And it's not something that we just see in the state of Illinois. When we go to our national conference every July, this is something that's going on really all throughout the country. Uh, There's a lot of reasons behind the coach turnover, Um, at least my theory and, and a lot of what others have said in other states, really it comes down to four different things. Number one, and we'll get into mentorship, But a lot of coaches are finding themselves in a position where they don't have good mentors. They don't have someone that they can rely on for advice, someone that is invested in them, but not in the thick of it with them. Um, So mentorship, hopefully, is something that our organization and coaches' organizations all across the country can really uh, invest in to help coaches in in terms of their longevity. Uh, The second thing is a lot of uh, coaches are, are getting jobs at a really young age without a lot of experience. I know uh, everyone on this call, You know, we've certainly spent a lot of time as assistant coaches um, before we became head coaches. And that certainly helped prepare us for that transition. And certainly if coaches get jobs too soon and they don't have mentors, when they get into difficult situations or there's a question that they don't have an answer to, it could be a little bit more difficult to navigate. The third thing that's really hurting coaching longevity is... Um, Issues in terms of uh, parent pressures. And in some cases, this is not the situation uh, everywhere, but in some situations, also a lack of administrative support. And so, oftentimes, coaches who spend so much time away from their family, spending hours and hours each day growing their program, trying to invest in their kids, uh, when they see that all of that time being spent is resulting in more and more issues tough things that they have to navigate certainly coaches begin to question whether or not the profession is the right thing for them and then the fourth thing i think is really new is covid i think a lot of coaches spent a lot of time at home uh, during the holidays during thanksgiving and christmas and they ended up uh, seeing what it was like being home during the holidays with their family especially those with younger families so i think longevity and coaching turnover and coaching is uh, certainly a threat uh, to the development of the game of basketball I think the next thing is a, a official shortage. Um, there's been talk for a lot of years about a, a lot of great officials retiring and not as many uh, young officials coming in that is absolutely needed uh, to continue on, I guess, um, the legacy of those older, more experienced officials. So, hopefully the official shortage is something that we can help fix in terms of promoting the benefits of being an official and, and recruiting young uh, new officials to, to the game. So I think those are all kind of things that are, are certainly uh, strengths and, and opportunities in, in basketball in the next five years, but also threats uh, to the growth of the game as well.
2: So here's an interesting, just a twist to this is for you, is there something that other states do that maybe we you wish Illinois did as far as the game.
1: Uh, well, for me personally, uh, shot clock <laughs> is right up there. I mean, uh, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the states that uh, that we've talked to that have just implemented the shot clock. Like I said, absolutely love it. A couple of my friends from Georgia are super excited about them recently uh, implementing it, for example, and uh, they speak really highly of it. So that's one thing, um, but to be honest, you know, this is gonna sound like I'm, I'm a little bit biased, but I guess I am. I think in Illinois, we do a lot of really good things. And I think there's so much to, to celebrate. Certainly it's not perfect. And there are a lot of things that we continue to really need to look at developing and growing but I do think Illinois does uh, overall a really good job of growing the game of basketball, but certainly other States with the shot clock, for sure. Other States have talked about the mentorship programs that they're starting as well, that we're hoping to uh, duplicate here. All
0: right. Um, maybe let's get into a, since we're on the topic of of Illinois, a, a very controversial topic in Illinois of where the state championship games are held. Um, Right, you go back and forth. Right, you look at some of the higher divisions. Uh, I, John and I had talked about this in what was it, February? Right, looking uh, at. And, the-
2: and I think we were asked uh, by the coach of Amundsen Girls. He asked. He was asking yeah. us questions about it on in the show.
0: Right, you know, you look at a lot of the maybe three A, four A, and a lot of the teams come from Chicago and the Chicago area. Right, just because there's not a lot of lot of teams, so uh, you know that the, they combine it. They're playing everything. We had. <laughs> Um, right at least on the girls side we had the third place game and maybe it was later you know so um, I guess what is the I guess the process and the ongoing conversations on that and, and kind of trying to find the right balance for everybody because it's obviously a you know, you know tough to accommodate teams downstate and teams from the Chicago area um, so you know I guess that's one of maybe one of the more controversial topics besides the shot clock in the state of Illinois
1: You know, I I think um, Illinois is a a really unique state. Um, Number one, because of our size, Uh, we're a big state geographically, but also because I think we're many different communities uh, in terms of, you know, what people want and what they need and uh, what they expect. So for example, you know, if you're coaching in downstate Illinois and, and you're coaching at a small school. Your motivations, your needs, um, what you want, is going to be different oftentimes from maybe someone coaching at a, a big school in the city, and that's actually one of the challenges that we face, uh, you know, in our organization, the IBCA, is making sure that everybody feels and everybody is represented the best they possibly can be. Um, you know, when it comes to the state tournament, I, I know uh, I'm a part of a committee that meets with the IHSA a, a couple of times every single year. And I know they feel the same way. They, they want to make sure that they try to serve as many people in such a diverse state as, as they possibly can. So it was really important for them to continue to have a, a state tournament that was more centrally located that people from all over the state can access. Now, certainly you go to Peoria, you go to Champaign, you go to Bloomington. It's closer for some people than it is for others, but they felt that at least it's as centrally located as it possibly can be now Um, moving to the new format this year has certainly been controversial, right, Todd, Uh, in terms of the setup and and the days and stuff like that. I do know that uh, the IHSA um, put a lot of time and and effort into it, and it wasn't perfect. Um, And I know that they're taking a lot of suggestions in terms of how to make it better. Uh, For me personally, I I was very, very lucky that um, my team was able to to earn a spot downstate in the first year that they did it in Champaign. And I will tell you that we had a tremendous experience. Um, It was awesome. It was so cool for our kids to be able to play uh, at State Farm Center on U of I's court. The uh, tournament we thought was well-run. It was well-attended, especially in the earlier games. And it was a great experience for everyone, something that we're really never going to forget for the rest of our lives. Um, it didn't come without hiccup. I mean, we lost in the uh, the Final Four game against eventual state champion uh, Sacred Heart Griffin, and we had a quick turnaround. We ended up having to come back and, and play our third-place game later that day against Simeon, and you know, logistically that was kind of tough too. So there are some logistical issues I think that the IHSA is going to continue to Iron out uh, over the years, hopefully, with a lot of coach feedback. Hopefully, the IBCA can be a voice for coaches in the state of Illinois to bring to the IHSA the changes that our coaches want. But I do know that uh, overall, I think the reception of holding all four classes in the same weekend uh, was pretty positive, especially on championship Saturday, uh, even if you had some yeah. logistical really cool. final four and third place games. How about that, John? You get Sacred Heart Griffin, then, hey, here's Simeon.
2: Yeah, you lost. <laughs> Now, yeah, you Simeon. Say, here's Simeon.
1: <laughs> it, it was it was interesting, but it was you know what you, you you get down there and it's like uh no matter what you do, you win the game, you lose the game, you're gonna play one of the best teams in the state. And oh, right. we uh we tried our best to plan ahead, and so we had our scouts done on both Simeon and uh Metamora before we played Sacred Heart Griffin, because that turnaround uh-huh. was way too quick. And I get I not
0: not that you know, obviously we have Huddle and all those things now, but at least Simeon's in the city right you you know them you kind of you you see them right you you have a you have a pretty good idea of what what is going to do so that maybe makes it a little bit easier but in theory i guess right in theory maybe not in practice
1: <laughs> yeah in theory and we actually um just to be safe i i started collecting film on opponents um from all throughout the states uh right around the beginning of January, uh, kind of looking where all the the sectional uh, seating's uh, shaped up. So we tried our best to be as forward thinking as possible, uh, but certainly, you know, you don't know until you know uh, who you're playing that next game.
0: Look, he sounds like he beat me to some state tapes.
2: Yeah, some yeah, players. I was gonna say, you're talking to the right guy about collecting film. <laughs> the film. The, the king of film collection. Yep. You know, I, 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 as we were talking, I, I was thinking of just some interesting, just follow up interesting scenarios. So for example, you know, in the three, a girl state championship, two teams from the same conference played. Um, you know, in, in the, the four, a girl state championship, it was two teams, Stevenson and Bennett that are within 10 miles of each other, but you know, they go down and, and they play at Redbird arena. So, you know, I, I wonder too, eventually if there are you know, and I understand the geographical things of a sectional, but I also wonder if there will ever be a way to look at it. So, for example, like in my sectional, three of my conference opponents are with me. I know in, in Todd's sectional, you know, in Todd, Todd plays in the East Suburban where you obviously came from, from Pat's, you know, in the East Suburban Girls Catholic League, if you look, almost all of them win a sectional. So, you know, I wonder, you know, if there ever will be a discussion of maybe how to move that around a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, I think there is. Um, We, as an organization for the IBCA, went down uh, to meet with the IHSA a a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, because we were interested in seeing how they decided who was going to play in what sectional. And uh, Kurt Gibson and Beth Souser, our two uh, boys and girls basketball moderators, ended up uh, sharing their computer screen, and they had a map that had it, it really looked like a pretty complex math equation, uh, geometry, which I was not good at. And there were lines and 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 highlighted uh, cities and and all sorts of stuff on this map, and they were trying to connect it kind of like a spider web, and it looked pretty complicated, but certainly you know, I think there's, there's room for improvement. Um, you know, having two conference teams play each other downstate is, is certainly not ideal. I I think a lot of it has to do with geography and school size and, Every uh, class is is way different. I mean, if you go to 4A down south, you might have a regional opponent that's two hours away, whereas you're in 4A up on the north side of the city and you're playing schools that you already played. So I think um, there's probably no easy way to do it, but I, I certainly think that we need to continue to bring suggestions to the IHSA about stuff that works for coaches and more importantly, stuff that works out for our kids.
2: So I, I do, I, I, before we kind of just move on to some other things, I, I wanted to really talk about this, the mentor program. And I know that was the number one thing you kind of brought up in your point about, you know, why coaches are leaving at such a young age. I, I guess, you know, in your mind, why, why is that so important? I mean, I, I know Todd and you and I, we can name our mentors off the top of our head for sure. Um, you know, I've had many conversations with Bailey myself um, but you know why? Why is that so important to you? And and what would your goal be?
1: Well, I, like you mentioned, I, I think all of us could you know name our mentors uh, and the people that have been so important in our lives and in our coaching career. And just speaking from personal experience, you know, I've been a head coach now for six years, um, and I've been a coach now for twenty. And you know, I love this profession. I wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, but it, it it's not always easy. Um, especially when you move into the role of a head coach, you know, you succeed and you fail in a very public way. And every decision you make is scrutinized by everybody watching because most people have either played the game or are fans of the game. So, you know, those are our challenges, um, you know, that present itself to every single coach. And I think it's important to have somebody that is experienced, that is invested in you, but isn't in the thick of the day-to-day activities that you are in to be a sounding board for you. You know, I'm very lucky I have Coach Bailey, uh, Jim Tracy at St. Lawrence, obviously leader of our IBCA. Um, Those two guys, for example, Coach McKenna, Hall of Fame girls coach at St. Ignatius. These are all people that have been really Important to me in terms of my development as a coach, and have also been a tremendous support structure in place when I needed help or I needed an idea or I needed to to have validation for a decision that I was about to make. You know, I think having them there really has been instrumental in terms of, you know, making sure that I'm making the right decisions, but also making sure that I feel supported because sometimes being a head coach can be a lonely job. Um, you know, you work with incredible people. I mean, I have a coaching staff that's amazing that I all, that I think are really all, you know, some of my closest friends. But at the end of the day, uh, as a head coach, everything falls on you. And so having that outside support is invaluable to help you navigate those difficult times and and to stay the course and stay positive. So the importance of having a good mentor, I think, is, is well-established and, you know, it's not just in coaching, it's really in any walk of life. So, As an organization, the IBCA is trying to find ways that we can create a program that's set up to help mentor people that maybe don't have natural mentors in their lives, that maybe aren't as lucky as the three of us and so many others that have those experienced coaches to turn to. And so we're in the process of putting together what this looks like. Uh, We've contacted coaches from all over the state, from different backgrounds, with different specialties and expertise. And uh, different experience levels, and hopefully uh, in the next year or so, we'll be able to roll out this program so that if someone has a question about leadership, about captains, about scheduling, about the one-two-two ball press, about how to navigate a difficult issue with playing time, whatever the case may be, um, hopefully we'll have people in place that are experts in those areas so that people who are in coaching have someone that they can turn to that maybe they otherwise didn't.
0: Well, and I think that's a, a, a tremendous point. Agreed. Just in, in general, um, you know, I Coach Raymond at St. Vider, you know, uh, John actually hired me. We, we pick our chess brains. But, like, for me, basketball-wise, I was more a, a baseball guy. I did college baseball and things like that. So I, I took my coaching mentorship from, from that side. But, like, you know, I, I'll even translate to the podcast here, like, just by doing this podcast
2: think of the same thing
0: so many great people that we make connections with yeah. you know it doesn't have to be it's just somebody you can be like hey what do you think about this or, or you know what do you think about this or have you ever had this um just to have somebody to bounce those questions off of it is it, so important for for a young coach and and an experienced coach right like you know yeah, I, you mentioned covid and the and the changing landscape of coaching well there's a lot of things now that maybe you're like i don't know like this has never happened before so you try to get the experience of of other coaches and ideas and combine them together and, and make the best plan you can
1: so yeah absolutely absolutely oh, go ahead. Yeah. oh yeah i mean i think you know looking at you know some of these situations that we've been presented with the last couple of years you know dealing with COVID. Um, none of us have been through this, but a lot of us have been lucky to have others to bounce ideas off of, even in these unprecedented times. Um, you know, I remember trying to put together, I think they told us on a Friday last year that we're gonna start on Monday. Right. And I right. remember calling yeah. a bunch of people, hey, what are you doing? What's the plan? How are you gonna use the kids into this? Yeah. Um, you know, another example is you know, we're going downstate and uh, we win our super sectional game on a Monday, and then we're we're beginning plans Tuesday morning uh, for our, our trip downstate on Thursday. So I was very lucky to be able to call coaches that had gone downstate like coach Slaughter, coach bros, coach Kleinschmidt, coach Hydecamp, uh, a lot of different, you know, coaches that had experienced that before. And they helped me navigate some of that unprecedented, uh, stuff that I had to deal with stuff that was new to me. So I agree with you. Um, I think mentorship is absolutely key and hopefully it's something that we could provide to people that might not necessarily be lucky enough to have them.
0: All right, let's let's let you let hype your, your program a little bit. Um, you mentioned your state run last year. Um, you know, take us through the year and maybe some key steps along the way, right? Like, obviously, you know, you have a pretty good squad coming in. Um, you have your expectations, you have your plans. Um, but I guess the, the the first question is, like, what were your your key steps along the way? Maybe a game where you're like okay, yeah, we're, we're getting there. Um, you know, cause every year there's, you, you have a good team and you, you know, you can do it, but you, you need a little luck along the way you need, right. It, that's, that's how you get to a state championship. There's, unless you're the most, you know, you have some NBA team or whatever, but what were some of your key steps throughout the year that, you know, as you were going thought, yeah,
1: you know, we're, we're getting there. We can make a run at this. You know, I, I think, um, Really, the process began two years ago. Um, right before COVID hit, uh, we had uh, one of our best teams, uh, the best team that we had up to that point uh, since I was a coach at Ignatius. It was my fourth year there, and we, uh, we had a, a fantastic team. We finished 24-9, and and we ended up uh, winning a, a sectional semifinal game at the buzzer to advance to the Sweet 16, and then the season was canceled by COVID. And a lot of our seniors, a number of our seniors this year were sophomores on that team. And the following year, uh, we had pretty high expectations, but just like uh, every other coach and every other program and every other player in the state, we didn't get an opportunity to play in a state tournament. We certainly were very thankful that we were able to have our season, but we longed for the opportunity to compete in the playoffs. So once we got into this preseason leading up to this year, we were really excited. We were really excited about the team we had coming back. We were really excited about the opportunity to to have a full season and and to be able to compete in the playoffs. And more importantly, we were really excited to go to war alongside such a a good group of guys. And when we got into the fall, um, leading up to the start of the season, we knew expectations were really high. Probably the highest expectations have ever been for our basketball program at our school in the Sun-Times, we, we started the season ranked uh, number four in the preseason top 25. So we had high expectations, and uh, we also had big goals for ourselves. And we knew that it wouldn't be easy. We loaded up our schedule to try to challenge ourselves the best we could to try to see a wide variety of opponents and systems so that we would be prepared to come state tournament time. When we started the season, um, I think those expectations got to us a little bit. Uh, we had a couple of early season losses. I think we started the season three and four, and, and it was a little tough on our guys. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a, a dose of reality that our road to our goals wasn't necessarily going to be easy. Then all of a sudden, we started playing our best basketball. We had a couple of huge wins. Uh, we were really hitting our stride in the middle of December, and then COVID hit our program and we had to shut down, and we ended up missing about 10 days of practice, and we did not play games for about 16 days, and when we came back together, uh, it was like we started the season over. Uh, We had to do conditioning again. Uh, We had to remember all of our plays or remember the way that we played. It was basically like the first day of practice, and when we competed over Christmas break, we stumbled a few times, and um, it was tough. Um, It was tough, especially with the high preseason expectations. And we ended up entering our most difficult stretch of games in our Catholic League schedule, eight and seven. And I'll never forget, there was a moment we were playing Brother Rice. Uh, They were a a top seven team in the state. And we were eight and seven, uh, had struggled a little bit, been up and down and kind of didn't really hit our full stride yet. And we had a fantastic game against them. And we ended up losing at the buzzer. And there's no moral victories, especially in the Catholic League, but our guys in the locker room after, uh, they started to really believe and they started to feel more confident. And we ended up going on a really huge stretch where we ended up beating Bolingbrook the next day, um, ended up beating uh, Mount Carmel for their first loss and a couple other schools, DePaul Prep won our Jesuit Cup, all fantastic programs with outstanding teams. And that really helped us build our confidence. Uh, After that stretch, we dealt with some injuries and and we dropped a couple of games um, that maybe we were favored to win. And and the coaches that coached against us, the players that competed against us in those games, they certainly earned those victories. But what really stood out to me is when we stumbled again, later on in the season, the lessons that we learned from the beginning of the season, how to stick together, the importance of perseverance through adversity, the importance of continuing to just focus on being the best versions of yourself every single day, living in the moment and playing present. All those experiences that we dealt with earlier helped us navigate those stumbles that we had later on in the season. And I think those experiences served us well. We had talked a lot going into the playoffs and really throughout the entire season that everything that we learned together, yeah, our successes, but more importantly, the moments we fell short, those moments we fell short were going to be the reason why we were going to be successful later on. And I think we took those lessons and and really applied them to go on a nice run in the playoffs. And it was, like I said, an incredible experience. And, you know, to be honest, um, handling adversity and and going through a little bit of ups and downs and and dealing with difficult situations, uh, especially at the beginning of the year, it could not have been possible unless we had a, a group of dedicated coaches on our staff that always bought in, that always promoted a unified message. And that doesn't happen if we don't have a fantastic group of young men that cared about the program, loved our team and played for one another. And that was a special group that persevered. And the story of that group, I think uh, from now until I'm done coaching will always be a story of perseverance and togetherness and never losing sight of, of what your ultimate goal is. All right, so let's
0: transition going forward, right? You, you made that state run, you're, you're going in the next year. Um, Two part question here. What are your, your goals going forward into next year? And then how does that translate into preparing for summer, right? Because everybody's like, oh, the season's over. We got some time. And you look up and it's April, going to be May. And oh, wait, it's summer camp, right? So,
2: you know, what are your goals? And then translate them to summer. In case anyone wanted to know, it's 45 days till summer camp, but I'm not that I'm going where nobody's counting. We're all counting, but nobody's counting. Can't
1: wait, actually. Um, Yeah, you know, really there as coaches, obviously things die down in the off season a little bit, but there's never time off. As you guys know, it's, it's a year round thing, always trying to, to build your program and serve the kids. But Todd, I I think that's a really good question. Um, What's interesting to me is, you know, the last six years building our program has been a process and it's uh, been something that we've always kind of worked towards an end goal. And that was to get downstate. Now the next chapter in our program is how do we maintain that level of success? How do we continue on that culture? And how do we even try to grow it even more? And so I think, you know, amongst our coaches and and definitely amongst our, our players in our program, there's a hunger to continue on the legacy of the guys that graduated before them continue on what we achieved this year and and to do it again and and to try to go even further. I was talking with with one of our guys who was a freshman on our team this year. His name is Phoenix. And one of the things that he mentioned to me was coach, I want to go downstate every single year. So certainly I think, you know, once we got uh, the taste of going to Champagne and having a great year, the last couple of years, the kids want to do it again. And I know that they're hungry to do so and they're working hard uh, on their own in the off season to, to be prepared for us to, to start June and hopefully start off strong um, in terms of preparation. I mean, you guys know, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a balance of wrapping up the past year and preparing for next year. Um, I meet with every single kid in our program, freshman through uh seniors, uh, managers, players um, to talk about their experiences. So I'm just wrapping those meetings up um, and certainly reviewing all of our film, putting together teaching reels and highlight videos for our kids, but also, you know, put our schedule together for next year, trying to put our June schedule together so that we are seeing a, a, a high level of competition so that we are seeing a variety of teams and that our kids have an opportunity to develop as much as they can at our camp and also to be challenged in those summer league games so it's something that we're super excited about um i think our kids um learns a a ton of valuable lessons themselves and from the people that came before them in our program and i think they're uh, ready willing and and able to to try to uh, accomplish some great things next year too
0: if only it was easy as the freshman exuberance of
2: yeah we're going to go downstate every year Yeah, coach i want to do it every year yeah, I loved
1: it. I loved it. Hey, you never know. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I love that spirit for sure. It's kind of funny when, you know, you first start out coaching, you think to yourself, man, I just want to be a head coach. And then you become a head coach. And now you want more. Now you want to be a successful head coach. You think to yourself, man, I just want to go down state." And then you get there and you're like, I want to win. I want to win the state championship. I want to come down again. I want to do this again. So it's certainly a, a, a fun progression and uh, uh, an exciting challenge i think it's one thing building your program to get to a certain level and then it's another thing trying to maintain that so it's certainly a challenge that we're looking forward to and um, it should be exciting should be fun
2: all right so Todd and i we Todd and i love when people tell their stories and and their elements so before i move into the 30 second timeout i wouldn't be a good podcast host if i didn't ask in your state run you're in your super sectional game you're playing to go down state you're playing your mentor how was that experience
1: it was unique um it was unique there there's a couple of parts that were unique to it um number one obviously the love and respect i have for coach bailey and for everyone in the saint patrick community uh before the game I got a ton of texts from you know friends that taught there uh, former players uh, parents uh, board members I mean you name it uh, telling me they were proud of me and congratulations on am getting there they did not wish me luck in the game but um <laughs> but they were they were so gracious and and so caring and and so I got to see a lot of them even right before tip so that was a unique uh situation for sure and then the other thing is you know Coach Bailey is someone that is one of my best friends and my mentor. So it certainly was was unique in that sense. And the other thing that that was kind of interesting is the last time St. Pat's went to a super sectional, I was an assistant coach there. And it was in 2015 when we played St. Joe's, we lost by one St. Joe's ended up winning the uh, state championship that year. And the game was at the same gym. Uh, at Hoffman Estates High School. So it's kind of surreal in, in that sense. But I also think that, you know, the St. Pat's staff and their players, uh, our kids and our coaches, um, certainly there was some unique circumstances there. But at the end of the day, the goal was the same. We want to go down state and we're going to do everything we can to, to win the game. And so once that tip off uh, started and the, the game began, uh, it was all business for our kids and for our coaches. And then obviously after, um, you know, it was exciting for us and, and the St. Pat's, Community couldn't have been uh, any more gracious in terms of wishing us the best. And, and they're really, truly a special group of people. So it was unique, but it was exciting. And it was one of the uh, coolest moments um, I've ever experienced in coaching. Being able to, to, you know, have our kids win a game and, and celebrate uh, getting to go down state for the first time in school history. It's something I'll never forget. Most importantly, just the, the look of joy on everyone's faces. That's something that I'll probably always, always carry with me.
2: That is very cool. I
1: think if uh, me and John ever played in a, like a
0: sectional state championship, it'd be hilarious for the fans because we'd be just calling out each other stuff.
2: Well, hey. yeah, that that would that hey, <laughs> It'd we just be going we'd, back we'd, and forth. There'd be no scouting report considering our press break yeah. is literally called the same thing. Yeah, we we just call each other's place for each other. Here. That's, that's,
1: <laughs> we that's... we have some of that, um, but after I left, uh, St. Pat's kind of changed their offensive and defensive system, so uh, it's a little bit more different than you would anticipate. Though certainly, you know, if you play um, against us or Pat's uh, Bennett, um, you play uh, against East, maybe in the future with uh, Sergio Murrow getting yeah, the job yeah. there. There's certainly some commonalities too that you'll see.
2: So as we move into our last two segments, this one we, uh, we call 30 second timeout. Um, we, this is kind of our opportunity to give the coach that were on with us, just the, the platform to talk about whatever they want. It can be about their program, their family. Uh, we've had people talk about coaches' wives. We've had people turn uh, the topic back on us and interview us, um, which we're never ready for. So that's always interesting. Um, but it's your platform, you know, your 32nd timeout there's no referee in your timeout. So it's a loose 30. Uh, so, you know, whatever you want to talk about the floor is yours.
1: You know, I was uh, thinking about this a lot over the last uh, couple of hours. And to me, uh, the thing that I think I really wanted to just share, um, I read a fantastic book over one of the summers. I like to read a lot over the summer and read a book called start with why by Simon Sinek. And it's fantastic. And and it really got me thinking about, you know, our program and and really me as a coach and and also our players' experience. So one of the big things I would say to anyone taking over a program is to understand the mission of your program and have that mission drive every single thing that you do. Certainly as coaches, uh, we know what we do. We coach basketball. We know how to do it. Uh, We all have our offensive and defensive philosophies. But sometimes I think we forget why we do it. Um, at St. Ignatius, our driving force, our mission in our basketball program is our basketball program is bigger than basketball. Certainly, we want to win championships, we want to go down state. we want to cut down nets, we want to win as many games as we can, we want to play at a high level. Uh, that's all part of it. But If that's all we're doing, all we're doing is winning championships and winning games, but we're not having a positive impact on the overall lives of every player and manager that comes through our program, then we're not doing our jobs. So having a mission, having a driving force uh, like ours, our program is bigger than basketball, I think is really, really important. Understanding what your why is, why do you coach? What is the purpose of your program? Um, Going into our game against Simeon, for the third place game in Champagne, you know, there was a lot of emotions. Um, Our guys were really disappointed that we lost a a tough competitive game to Sacred Heart Griffin. And it was a a quick turnaround for our guys. And one of the things I challenged them with uh, was our program mission and understanding their own why. In the uh, pregame huddle, I told them, I said, you guys need to remember why you played basketball, why you fell in love with the game, what drew you to the game of basketball. And you need to be that kid that fell in love with basketball when you go out there and you play Simeon. And I think when our kids really thought about that, I I hope that it inspired them to to really not just give their best effort, but to enjoy every single moment, to love it all. Speaking of, my last point on this would be, there's another good book by John Gordon called The Carpenter. And uh, it's a fantastic story. I don't know if you guys have read it. I love it. But the thing that really kind of stood out to me is is one part of the book. uh, He talks about really loving what you do. And if you love what you do, you got to love it all. Uh, You can't just love the good moments. Uh, You got to love certainly the successes. You got to love when things go well, but you also got to love when it doesn't. Uh, You got to love the challenges that are presented to you. You got to love the moments that aren't comfortable because it's all part of what you love. And so for me, um, that's something I've always tried to live by. And it's something I, I think is it, good advice for anyone in getting into coaching. It's not easy, but if you love it all, uh, you will never stop loving what you do. All
0: right, let's move into the the quick hitters.
1: Uh, <laughs> random stuff.
0: We're just going to throw it at you. Uh, could be basketball. Couldn't be. I don't We never we, know. Well,
2: we asked Ryan Gruber because he's by Brookfield Zoo. What is his favorite uh, zoo animal? Zoo was one? That's probably no. our
0: best quick hitter of all time.
2: <laughs> I love that. <laughs>
0: All right, so uh, back for your AAU days. Uh, funny or
1: crazy AAU story? Everybody. Yeah, I, coach, AAU. I coached AAU for 12 years. I loved it. I got to coach some really, really good players, and, and that's kind of where I cut my teeth. But as you guys know, uh, oh, man, there are some great <laughs> stories to tell. Um, the, probably the couple that really stick out to my mind. Um, number one, uh, when I first started coaching, uh, Jeffrey Jordan was on our team. He's a fantastic player and um, we ended up going it was must have been when he was in eighth grade and we went to Orlando for nationals and uh, somehow randomly the AAU organizers decided that they were going to match us up on a Saturday night at seven o'clock against a team called the D1 Greyhounds that OJ Mayo played on and OJ Mayo was like at that time the next LeBron James I mean everyone was talking about him and I'll never forget uh the gym was packed uh it was a big time atmosphere and Uh, we were at the milk house at the wide world of sports. I think they call it something different now at Disney, but, um, that's also where the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did their summer training. So halfway through the game, uh, this was just a few years after they, think they won the super bowl, Simeon Rice, for example, Warren Sapp, they came into the game and started watching. So it was literally, uh, one of the coolest atmospheres I ever saw we lost, but it was a fantastic game, but it was a really cool thing to experience. Um. One of the stories that I, I was actually just sharing with uh, one of our parents the other day was, uh, I never forget, we were playing, um, it's when I used to coach at, at Full Package Athletics, and we were playing at, at one of the rich high schools, um, and we were supposed to play at like 10 a.m., and at three in the morning, I got an email and a phone call from the tournament director saying, no, no, your game's at seven, so I had to call everyone um, bright and early and in wake the them morning? up. Yes, so they changed it three hours earlier, like three in the morning, so I get everyone we get everyone there miraculously. I I don't even know how it actually happened. But we're playing the game on the side courts, and it was the first game of the day. And they had no lines. There was no out-of-bounds line. There was no free throw line. There was no three-point line. So while we were playing, they started taping on the sidelines and the baseline. And during timeouts and stoppage of play, they were slowly filling in with tape the three-point line and the free throw line. So by about, I don't know, the three minute mark left in the game, we actually had a, a, a full court to play on, which was fantastic. Um, and probably the third story that I, I don't know why I always found this funny, but um, one time we had to play, so the locations you play in are so interesting sometimes when you go to these AU tournaments. And we were in Madison, Wisconsin, and we ended up playing at a site um, really in the, the attic of a church. And uh, the court was carpeted and the lines were painted in the carpet. It was great. But every time the ball bounced, it sounded like you were dribbling inside and our kids weren't getting floor burns. They were getting rug burns every time they dove on a loose ball. So those are things that all kind of stood out as, as fun stories um, that I remember from my AU coaching days.
0: Put it on the AU bingo card.
1: Yeah. I like Yes. A- AU bingo is a fun follow. And I, it is, it's a good a, follow because oh, sure anybody
0: who's coached AAU is like, yep.
1: Exactly. I was going to say, I'm sure that
2: you guys yep. are like, Oh, I've
1: seen that. Oh, I've seen that too. Yeah. Like, yep. sure. Yeah. Uh,
2: all right. So favorite, this is what kind of one we added, but and I like answered asking this one favorite or most unique gym you've coached in. That's not Ignatius. So maybe another high school that you just think is cool or unique, or you enjoy being in.
1: Well, I, you know, obviously I'm lucky. I coach at a pretty cool school and uh, I was at St. Pass, which is a fantastic gym as well. The best place I ever watched a game outside of that, Um, I had this uh, really talented player play for me for a number of years in AU, Jeremy Richmond. He ended up going to Illinois for a little bit. And his junior year, um, his Waukegan team was playing Warren Township High School. And their best player, Brandon Paul, was also a kid that I coached in AU. And so they're playing each other. I think it was a sectional final, and it was at Waukegan High School. And it was packed standing room only. And Jeremy ended up hitting a, a half court buzzer beater to win the game, to advance them to the super. And it was literally the coolest high school experience I ever saw. You know, Going back to a previous question, you asked me like college or high school, which way did you go? Um, that was another defining moment for me. It was such a cool experience that I, I wanted to be a part of the high school game, but it, it was awesome. So the Dog Pound and Waukegan, certainly down. one of them. Yes. The Dog Pound and Waukegan, certainly one of them. I went to watch One of my friends coached his first um, uh, game as a head coach. Uh, He was not the coach of the school, but I went to watch him play at Ottawa High School. That's a really cool gym as well. There's so many really neat uh, downstate schools and and really uh, awesome gyms in the city, too. So one of the cool things about coaching so long and coaching in different places is you get to see some of the coolest gyms around with great atmospheres. All right.
0: Favorite place to eat on the west side? Where are you eating?
1: I mean, uh, my school is uh, right next to Taylor Street. So um, we're surrounded, we're right in Pilsen, Little Italy, Greek town, Chinatown's right there. I mean, we have the best places to eat. I'm sorry to say I've gained a lot of weight since I started working at St. Ignatius because of the amazing restaurants. I'd say my two favorite places would be uh an italian place called Tefanos. it's fantastic it's it's a walking distance from school and also uh greek islands in greek town are really my two favorite go-to places on the west side
2: i like uh i like pompeii over there as well on taylor street pompeii is always good and you know you know when a place is good when you see the chicago cops eating there then you know it's a good place
1: oh absolutely pompeii i think we cater pizza from them like at least every other week
2: so um, we're, we're just curious, you know, when you were watching the tournaments uh, or, or now the NBA playoffs, what were some of your, what have been some of your things that you've taken away, maybe that you'll use or you thought was unique or a good idea or a good new concept or just some takeaways from both the tournament and, and the NBA playoffs so far?
1: You know, like I've alluded to earlier, I, I try really hard to be a student of the game. Um, sometimes watching games um, isn't always for entertainment. Um, Certainly I try to get into March Madness and the NBA playoffs a lot as a fan, but I end up, I'm sure you guys feel the same way. And and just about every coach thinks this way is I end up watching it more to learn uh, than to be a fan. And, you know, when you're looking at the game at at the NBA level and at the college level, there's so many creative and fun things that are being done. Um, And so I try to take as much as I can away from everything that I'm watching, like watching the NBA playoffs, for example, you're looking at the Bucks, uh, bull series, for example, uh, they played two games. One of the things I like to look at is how teams defensively adjust to their opponent throughout the course of a series, because they get to know those, you know, their opponents better than anyone they're playing them three, four, five, I mean, seven times potentially. And so seeing those adjustments, they make game to game to me is really interesting because it helps me really think about adjustments that we can make, uh, within the game and throughout the course of a season. Um, Twitter is like uh, coaching heaven when it comes to devouring new sets and plays. Um, There are a couple of different uh, times where we maybe played a defense that we hadn't experienced before. And I was able to go back and and steal a few sets that I had liked from the last couple of months being pulled from the NCAA, uh, you know, uh, uh, preseason games or the NBA, you know, regular season games, whatever the case may be. So it was really helpful. But um, I always love finding creative new ways to, to teach the game and, and watching the NCAA and NBA provides you those opportunities. Now, certainly not everything is applicable, but I do think that uh, there are so many concepts that you can steal and use effectively at the high school level.
0: Yeah, my, my wife looks at me like I'm crazy. I'm sitting there like writing down a hey, 1134 in the first of this game. I even get my daughter in it. And I'm like, hey, write this down, you know, um, And I, I think, like you said, like not all of it's applicable, but like sometimes the first part of a set, you know, an action, like an entry action or something, is really like, oh yeah, that that makes sense with what we do. You don't have to run the whole thing, right? Because NCAA, NBA gets really complicated after that, right? There's elaborate stuff, but yeah, I really like that. All right, so let's go to pregame meal or maybe a superstition you have.
1: Um well with the um uh risk of sounding like i'm uh, totally got these weird quirks um every time we have a game i love to have chinese food i get uh mongolian beef from ml kitchen uh except on fridays during lunch of course and um that's something that i do every single time we have a game and I, uh, my assistant coaches and, and the people i work with at school think that that's strange but i don't know it's just routine but um yeah i mean i, I think every coach has uh you know, pre-game superstitions or in-game superstitions. Like I can't have anything in my pockets besides uh, an Expo marker and my game card. I have to clear my pockets before a game. I can only use uh, the wooden uh, dry erase boards. I cannot use the plastic ones for some odd reason. It just doesn't feel right to me. Uh, Before every single game, Um, I certainly meet with my staff. We have our own little routines, uh, you know, who says what, uh, who I meet with and what we put on the board. But before every single game, I cannot start coaching until I stand by the scores table right before the tip. I ask my team if they're ready and I slap every player, coach and manager's hands uh, before the tip. So those are just a a couple of things that I think are maybe uh, some of my coaching quirks.
2: I like the uh, I like the Mongolian beef one. Now I want Mongolian beef. (laughs) All right, so so to finish uh, for you, um, Todd and I obviously have both been in the East Suburban a long time. Now you're in the Catholic League, as am I. What was your uh, welcome to the Catholic League moment as a head coach? You know, I I had two.
1: Um, well, just like you mentioned, you know, I was in the East Suburban for eight years, and it is one of the best conferences in the state of Illinois. And we've had at Pat so many incredible rivalry games and and high quality, big time, high school basketball that we played. So the transition over the Catholic league was probably made easier um, because of that for me, but uh, it certainly, you know, became apparent early on that the Chicago Catholic league is is certainly uh, a beast when it comes to competition. Uh, I truly believe that we got the best conference in the state. We have outstanding coaches, really talented players, uh, storied programs, great traditions, and, and tremendous atmospheres uh, from gym to gym. The the two moments that really stood out to me, my first year um, really kind of came through a, a success and also a failure. Uh, the first one came through a failure. We had played one of our uh, big rivals on uh, a Friday. It was our second conference game that I ever coached, and we got destroyed. And it wasn't even a game from, from the beginning. And it was in front of a packed house and and it was tough. Uh, It was a really hard loss and we had to turn around and play Uh, another quality opponent, just a couple of days later. And it became really apparent to me that there is no night off in the Catholic league. Uh, It is just super competitive. Even the teams that don't have the shiniest records are really good and super competitive and can knock teams off. So that was the first thing that was kind of a welcome to the CCL moment. Uh, The second one came through a success. Um, We had ended up uh, beating a team. Uh, It was maybe my third or fourth conference game. I got to coach at our school and we beat one of our rivals. Uh, We beat a team that really was favored over us at the last second in overtime. And I'll never forget, um, on my way home, the head coach of that school called me and congratulated me on that win. And it really demonstrated to me that the Chicago Catholic League coaches, while we compete against each other like crazy on the court, it really is um, a family. You know, when, when we went downstate, when we suffered through tough losses, had big wins, um, I'm constantly getting texts from my friends in the Catholic league, you know, coach Kleinschmidt and Livetino um, coach Murphy over at Providence Catholic. I, I'm, I just see I'm missing a million people, but um, the, the coaches in our league are really caring and supportive of one another and have a lot of pride in our league. And, and it really is a a great uh, fraternity to, to be a part of.
2: So coach Monroe, we knew this was going to be a great episode. I think there was about four guests that after uh talking to them when we always ask for suggestions for new guests. I think four or five people said, you got to get Coach Monroe on. You got to get Coach Monroe on. So we knew this was going to be a great episode. We can't thank you enough for your time and and willingness to be on and and for everything you do for the state of Illinois for basketball. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your
1: podcast. I live in Joliet and drive to the city. So I fill uh, most of my commute by listening to basketball podcasts and after the timeout is right at the top. So thank you guys for all that you do. And uh, it's really is an honor to be here and I'm looking forward to listening to all the amazing uh, guests you're going to have on in the future.
2: Thank you for listening to another episode of the after the timeout podcast hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Plicky. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Out, or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts by searching After the Timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more coaching content in-game, out of the game, and anything in between.